This is an AI-generated soft intro for post-credits with Gil Garcia, the podcast where we waste our time on bad movies. Today we are talking about The Marvels, the Marvel film that, like me, was written by AI. In this episode, we will rant about how much we hated The Marvels and how it ruined the characters of Carol Danvers, Monica Rambeau, and Kamala Khan. We hope you hate this episode and never listen to us again. Thank you for suffering. Hello, and welcome to Post Credits with Gil Garcia, where we go beyond the final scene. Today we have a doozy of an episode in store, and in today's episode, we will be tackling the latest Marvel Cinematic Universe film, The Marvels. Okay, so if you haven't shut off the episode just from the intro, yes, that was actually AI-generated. And I used the new iOS 17 feature uh, for speak-to-text, which allows the AI to generate using my voice. So that was an AI-generated version of my own voice speaking the intro. Really creepy. (laughs) That was actually an AI-generated copy of my voice reading the script. Pretty scary stuff, right? (laughs) Now, obviously I wanted the AI to be sarcastic. Not everything in this episode will be doom and gloom. I'm here to give you the good, the bad, and the downright weird with the Marvels. But I will say, this movie is feeling some serious heat, from the middling perceptions of the MCU following Phase 4 and Phase 5, to being a film following so many Disney Plus television series. The Marvels needed to be a home run for the studio. And with the franchise hanging in the balance, the Marvels had a lot to answer for. Is superhero fatigue a real thing? Can Marvel's Disney Plus characters translate to the big screen? Are people going to respond to the Marvels the same way that they reacted to Captain Marvel? And where does the MCU go from here? All the ingredients are here for another unmitigated comic book film disaster, but before we get into the show and answer those questions, let's do a bit of housekeeping. Once again, December is right around the corner, so if you have a recommendation for a film you would like to hear me cover on the podcast, please submit it on social media. PC with Gil is my handle on both Instagram and X. You can reach out to me there on those platforms. If, for whatever reason, you're off-put by the MCU now, or you just straight-up hate Brie Larson, I have some good news. Next week's episode will be the Thanksgiving John Hughes classic, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. So focusing on today's episode, we're going back to our new release spoiler format. There are no spoilers throughout the show until after our outro. Fret not if you want to go into the Marvel's Blind. For the better part of the next half hour or hour, depending on how long I want to rant, (laughs) we will remain spoiler free. Let's not delay any further and get into this shit. It's time to go higher, further, faster with Brie Larson and the Marvels. It's time for Act 1. Synopsis and Expectations. Carol Danvers, aka Captain Marvel, has reclaimed her identity from the tyrannical Kree and have taken revenge on the Supreme Intelligence, but unintended consequences see Carol shouldering the burden of a destabilized universe. Would her duties send her into an anomalous wormhole linked to the Kree revolutionary? Her powers become entangled with that of Jersey City superfan Kamala Khan, a.k.a. Miss Marvel, and Carol's estranged niece, now saber astronaut, Captain Monica Rambeau. The Marvels is directed by Nia DaCosta, known for being the writer and director of the Candyman remake in 2021. It's also penned by Megan McDonald, who worked on WandaVision and Alyssa Karasik, who worked on the Apple TV original shows We Crashed and Lessons in Chemistry. The film stars Brie Larson as Captain Marvel, a.k.a. Carol Danvers, Iman Vellani as Miss Marvel, a.k.a. Kamala Khan, Tiana Paris as Monica Rambeau, Samuel Jackson as Nick Fury, and Zoe Ashton as a forgettable and dumb fuck of a villain by the name of Darben. <laughs> And I only know that because I had to Google what the fuck her name was in the film. (laughs) Oh, man. 
<laughs> All right, we're going hard in the paint on this one. <laughs> it's hard to talk about this film without talking about the previous projects that the three main leads were attached to. There's Captain Marvel, WandaVision, and Miss Marvel. Starting off with Captain Marvel, I think it gets more slack than it deserves. The 1990s setting worked quite well for me when I watched it the first time. It gave us a chance to see a younger Nick Fury, which is almost always a good thing for the MCU. Samuel Jackson brings a lot of credibility and a lot of rapport into the, into the MCU films that he's in. Carol Danvers is a character that we can root for, although she isn't the most charismatic or friendly. And Brie Larson has actually made it a point to say to naysayers that Captain Marvel doesn't need to smile all the time. Brie Larson is a fantastic actress, don't get me wrong, but I don't think that there is a synergistic compatibility between her and the studio, and it kind of shows in this film. But the original Captain Marvel film was where she got the most heat for her role, but she lashed out at the fans who were saying other things about her, and with reason, it made her kind of a polarizing character figure in the MCU right off the bat. As for WandaVision... WandaVision is where we finally see Monica Rambeau as an adult. She debuts in the MCU in the show as a side character that has been held captive by Wanda Maximoff. Her diabolical magic is strangely what ends up giving Monica Rambeau her powers. Although the show has its high points, there are a ton of forgettable moments. Mostly, people watched WandaVision to know where Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness was going to go. But for this movie... WandaVision's necessary because you have to have remembered the character journey that Monica Rambeau went on in that show. If you don't remember, this movie kind of does a poor job of catching you up. So if you're going into this film, I definitely recommend watching WandaVision at least. Now, one of the biggest issues that I had with the Marvels is how much homework is required in order to involve yourself in the story. Full disclosure, though, I never watched Miss Marvel on Disney+. By the time I went to see the Marvels, I actually made the actor choice not to binge watch it either. I felt like if this movie was going to earn my attention and earn my respect, I would like to know how these characters act without the baggage of having to watch them on Disney+. I wanted to see just how inside baseball the franchise was getting. If this movie did its job very well in introducing Kamala Khan and Monica Rambeau to myself... Someone who has been active in watching all these Marvel projects since the beginning of Phase 1. Then, how would someone who's never seen a Marvel film react to this? And keep in mind, I only just chose not to watch one of the shows. And that was Miss Marvel, sadly. You guys ever go to a party, but it seems like there's a group of people who share a specific set of inside jokes with the party host that you're not a part of? Well, that's kind of the feeling I was afraid of getting while watching the Marvels. Because, like I said, I wanted to see how inside baseball this film was. As of recently, the only MCU projects that I have kept up on have been the films and Loki Season 1. I just started Loki Season 2 today, by the way. I skipped out on Secret Invasion, She-Hulk, Loki Season 2 until today, and then, of course, Miss Marvel. Was that to the detriment of the film? Or am I the idiot for not being a stan and mindlessly gushing over the recent string of bad Marvel projects? Let's get into the main part of the show now, my spoiler-free review of the Marvels. This is Act 2. Now, I will definitely answer the question I posed. Do you have to watch the Disney Plus shows to enjoy the Marvels? I really do think so. This film does a poor job of catching the audience up on the central three characters and why they're bonded together. The film starts with Monica and Carol estranged for some reason, and it takes almost half the runtime for us to get into why. You also need to know what is going on with Miss Marvel and her bangle couplets. If you did not know anything about this, yeah, this movie does a poor job of introducing those two. And to be honest... I don't think the estrangement between Monica and Carol is particularly earned in this film. It's an unnecessary character hurdle that gets thrown away almost immediately when Nick Fury intervenes between the two. So if you didn't watch WandaVision, you're left there thinking, why do these two have a beef against each other? 
Um, amongst WandaVision and Miss Marvel, here are the other projects that you should watch before you go and see this film. There's obviously Guardians of the Galaxy, Captain Marvel, Secret Invasion, although that show is fucking horrendous. I don't recommend watching it at all, but it does detail some key plot points that are glossed over in this film, particular to Nick Fury and what he's doing in this movie. You have to watch Miss Marvel, WandaVision, and I would also say catch up with Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. This movie really requires you to have done your homework to enjoy it to its fullest. And that's kind of a shame. Even for someone like myself who has mostly caught up with everything Marvel, I didn't enjoy this movie the way I thought I was going to. I didn't have fun when I should have had fun. I believe fundamentally that a film should be able to hold its own without the need of research or blind fanaticism to the source material. Some people will criticize my review and say, oh, that's because you don't like Marvel. You're just hating. Well, that's the point. That's why Marvel's in a shit show. It's because they're now just doing fan service shit instead of catering to the mass audience. The reason why people went to go see the Avengers and the Avengers Endgame is because they liked the characters. It broadened its horizon to more than just the Marvel diehards. Even people like my father and my my aunts and uncles went to go see the Avengers, and they don't give a shit about superheroes. They never read a single comic book in their life, but those movies were so well made that people who never watched these films or never cared about the comic books or the cartoon series, they were able to enjoy those movies. That's a testament to the quality of the movies and a testament to the quality of the source material and the characters on screen. I believe that the only people that are positively recommending these films and are going to bat for a movie like this are the people who just blindly love Marvel. And you got to be careful. The last fan base that did something like this were Snyder fans. So I think we're towing a line now. Marvel's made some bad movies in the past, more recently than uh, DC. And their fan base is starting to become as ravenous as the DC fan base. So we got to be careful. It's fair to defend something you love passionately, but when you start harassing people, labeling people as misogynists, or calling people anti-woke because they don't go along with a bad movie, that borders on just cynicism, you know? A lot of people are bringing valid criticisms to the discussion about this film in particular, And they're quick to get shut down by a flood of fanboys online or fangirls online as well who are just vehemently ferocious and toxic about their fandom. And it's kind of sad to see. You can't be harshly critical of a project without being labeled something. But it's not just in comic book movies that I think that blind fanaticism to source material can be bad. It's also in biopics novel adaptations, video game adaptations, and crossover franchise. And I believe the Marvels betrays this very fundamental belief of mine because it is so reliant on the Disney Plus shows that came before it. The story folds under the weight of continuing MCU continuity. Are you going to give a shit about the Kree-Skrull War if you've never seen Secret Invasion or Guardians of the Galaxy? Probably not. But then again, it doesn't feel like Nia DaCosta gave a shit either. When the movie does try to recap or fill the general audience in on what happened before, it feels like a major exposition dump of mumbo-jumbo and hard-to-follow insight. The plot retcons some former truths presented in the MCU, most notably Captain Marvel's relationship with the Kree Empire, which, to be fair, has some interesting dynamics to it, but they don't fully get flushed out in a meaningful way. The same can be said about Kamala Khan and Carol's dynamic. There are some very interesting moments between the two characters early on in this movie that can genuinely bring some tension and stakes to the film, but Nia DaCosta and the writing staff decided, fuck it, we'll just drop those tense dynamic moments almost immediately. And we'll talk about that more in the spoiler discussion after my credits, because it was a real highlight of the movie for me, while also... It was a major pain point why they didn't do anything with it. A huge missed opportunity. 
The script is a mess. And from my understanding, it's due to the fact that it went through so many different rewrites and production issues. This particular moment seemed to be a major casualty of those rewrites. They, they could add something special in the story with the tension between Kamala and Carol. Between Frankensteining three different plots and styles together, the movie also does no justice in its villain, Darben. Darben may be the new low benchmark for antagonists in the MCU, perhaps even comic book movies in general. No offense to Zoe Ashton, she did an okay job with the material they wrote for her, but this character goes from grimacing and posing with her hammer to grimacing and posing with her hammer. That's just about the character arc they give for her. People are now calling her a Dollar Tree Ronin the Accuser, and I think it's a very fair analogy. The movie tries to make her a sympathetic villain, but it never gets there. Every step of the way, Darben makes an irredeemable choice, and then they try to justify it afterwards. You cannot show a character slaughter millions of people one minute, then try to walk it back and show that they are doing it all for their people. That is not how strong character development works. The best MCU villains come from their darkest point and learn to embrace their poor morality. Dar Ben never gets there because her character arc is as flat as a Kansas plane. But that's not my only problem with this character. Oh no, my friends. She straight up steals the plot from President Scroob in Spaceballs. <laughs> that is right. Her home planet Hala is dying. The sun is is dying out and so her planet is losing its resources it's losing its atmosphere its ocean its flora and fauna so what does she decide to do darben plans to open up a portal and suck the oxygen and ocean from another planet in order to supply her own even to the point of stealing the earth's sun it's literally mega made from space balls <laughs> I really want to know which person at Marvel read the script and checked off on this idea. I sat there thinking this the whole time. This movie went from suck to blow. <laughs> oh man, it's so bad. I don't know what they were thinking here. Some other key plot points are also derivative of what we've seen in earlier MCU movies. Most notably, the finale of the film involving a space-time ripple is so absurdly written like the finale of Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania that I can literally feel the creative bankruptcy from the franchise unfolding right in front of my eyes. Now there's a bit of a difficult conversation to be had here, but I have to at least recognize the elephant in the room. Marvel is doing a fantastic job of diversity hiring. I think it's worth applauding them for hiring up-and-coming directors and writers from all different kinds of backgrounds. But I think the studio is doing every single one of these new filmmakers a big disservice by throwing them to the wolves with these properties. Filmmakers like Nia DaCosta, Julius Ona, and Chloe Zhao. Every single film from the Eternals to the Marvels has felt like a templated, generic sci-fi comedy with bullshit action thrown in. At least in phases 2 and 3, movies like Iron Man 2, Iron Man 3, and Ant-Man benefited from having some huge talent writing and directing them to give the movie some uniqueness and a little bit of character. Ant-Man was known for being written by Edgar Wright. Guardians of the Galaxy 2 which was also known as being the weakest of the Guardians trilogy, was written and directed by James Gunn. And then, the one that everyone points to as one of the worst films in the MCU up until Avengers Endgame was Iron Man 3. Even Iron Man 3 had Shane Black behind it. And I know it received a lot of backlash from people because Iron Man 3 did that whole Mandarin situation. But overall... I think it's a phenomenal film, and it does do the character of Tony Stark justice. That movie was intended to be more personal, less of a comic book movie, and more of a kind of strung-together action film about Tony Stark rather than Iron Man. 
I think people need to go back and give Iron Man 3 a lot more credit than what it what it received. That movie is actually really good and people slept on it. And in my opinion, I would much rather watch any of those movies I just rattled off, perhaps even Thor The Dark World, over most of what we've gotten from the MCU films in the last 5 to 10 years. Like my soft opening mentioned, The Marvels feels like it was written by an AI. It's so confused in what it wants to say narratively that I can only imagine that a machine or factory churned out the script. Tonally, the movie is all over the place too. Following the shortcomings of the script, the movie has some pretty good character moments with Kamala Khan and her family, specifically one minute. And then in the next minute, they're in a galactic peace treaty meeting where Darben is killing everyone on a planet. It's just all over the place. They couldn't nail down one tonal shift over the other. It wanted to be comedic, but it also wanted to be taken seriously. But it's not taken seriously enough to go all the way in on its messages and themes. There are two major plot points that I'll not speak of until our spoiler discussion that had me eye-rolling so badly I couldn't even write down my thoughts on my notepad when I was watching it in the theater. I just had to sit there blankly staring and let the sequences happen to me. (laughs) Now, many apologists will reference those scenes in particular as the most fun moments in the movie for me, but many critics and general audiences agree with me. Those two moments are the jump the shark moments of the MCU. Usually, I can gauge how the audience feels about a movie because of the ovations, the laughter, and the energy of the theater, but I shit you not, My auditorium went silent while these two scenes were going on. Perhaps one of the two women in the back of the room were giggling, but the vast majority of us were wondering in unity, what the fuck is happening right now? Are we really watching this? (laughs) Yeah, and that's, oh man, that's just like an overall culmination of how I felt about this film. I don't normally record these episodes to straight up shit on popular movies because I want to. If you've followed the show until this point, we've done only a handful of negative reviews in the 20 episodes that I've recorded so far. My tolerance for filming incompetence is pretty broad, and I like to think that it's fair. I mean, after all, I did review Saw 6 with a 3 out of 5 score, so take that for what you will. So my perspective on humor is going to vastly differ from yours if you're listening to this show. This movie may resonate with you. It may resonate with the target demographic that it's shooting out for. And it appears like a fun movie, but at its core, it's as cold, cynical, and soulless as the latest Indiana Jones film, Quantumania, Eternals, and even the shit we've seen out of the DC Universe. Things like The Flash... And Shazam! Fury of the Gods. This is on that level of cynicism and coldness. But before I give you my rating of the Marvels, this is the part of the review where I take a moment to highlight the things that I did like about it. I don't want this episode to be all doom and gloom, and I know I've ranted for about 20 minutes now. I don't want to be completely dismissive of the good choices that they made here either. An example of this is from a couple weeks ago during my Five Nights at Freddy's review. When I mentioned how interested I am in seeing a sequel, given the amount of lore and references they put into that movie, and that the animatronic suits are so accurate to the game and the set design was on point that I had to respect those filmmakers for going to the lengths of bringing an adaptation so faithfully to the big screen. So it's only fair that I do the same for this movie. I don't want to give you the impression that the Marvels is as bad as Troll 2 or Tommy Wiseau's The Room or even Biodome for that matter, (laughs) because it's not. There are some genuinely good moments in this film that even cold-hearted bastards like myself can take pleasure in. The first I want to highlight and mention is Aman Valani. I came away from my viewing of the Marvels extremely impressed with her work. As comedic relief and as the emotional backbone of the story, she walks circles around Brie Larson and Tiana Paris in this movie. She's funny, she's adorable, naive, and most importantly, she's more human than most of the new young characters that they've introduced into the MCU recently. 
characters like America Chavez, Riri Williams, Cassie Lang, and Kate Bishop. Iman Vellani's Kamala Khan is so much more likable and a lot more endearing than any of those characters that we've seen from Disney Plus so far. She doesn't appear as some know-it-all whiz kid that can come up with quantum science out of her ass. She's a very down-to-earth girl who is a fan of the Avengers. Her family is great, too. Her mother is a very nice woman who is protective of Kamala while also not being too overbearing. She's a good little sub-obstacle for Kamala to get over, and it gives the character a bit of a character arc in the end. I'm completely sold on Kamala Khan. Even if I feel like she wouldn't be able to anchor her own feature-length film, I think she's an absolute asset for the MCU going forward. Way to go, Amon Vellani. You are awesome in this movie, and I want to see where your career goes from here. Another aspect of the film that had me cautiously optimistic going into it was a superpower swapping mechanic. It looked like it was ripped straight from a video game, and I was concerned that narratively and visually, it was going to be a problem to follow the action. But... I am pleasantly surprised to say the set pieces involving the characters trading places was the best part of the movie for me. The idea that each character can activate their power simultaneously and transport anywhere, anytime in the galaxy is such a cool concept. The fight scenes where the three of them have to improvise in a new location against a new enemy is so fresh and fun, and I have to give Nia DaCosta credit where credit's due. She brought a lot of energy to these action sequences, and they're what makes this movie fun to watch. And tolerable. (laughs) I just wish that the movie had consistently more scenes like that. Now's a good point to mention the words, missed opportunities. Not using the power-swapping conundrum more throughout the movie is a huge missed opportunity for me, in my opinion. The film is filled with cool ideas that never get expanded upon, they get dropped, and are just left unsatisfying, leaving me to feel like Marvel is leaving a lot of missed opportunities on the table this late into the game. They should know better. This kind of reeks of a studio in disarray. Each director and project leader is not as in sync with Kevin Feige as they once were. This bleeding effect is leading to poor quality results. And although I can't say the Marvels is a bona fide disaster or dumpster fire, I have to chalk it up to being another prime example of the mid-CU. The Marvels gets a 2 out of 5 for me. This movie could have benefited from a tighter script that leaned into some more tense material, Brie Larson looks like she was sleepwalking throughout the film to another multi-million dollar paycheck, and the standout performance of Aman Vellani is buried in a tragically mediocre project. I know I'm a Caucasian cis male, and that my opinion, like with Barbie, doesn't hold much weight since I'm not the target demographic. But I just want better quality films for the audiences that do go out to see these kind of movies. I want to champion them to have better material at hand. Things that they could be proud of without the chastisation of the far right or the far left attacking one another. And sadly, these movies do bring out toxic behaviors in both sides of the spectrum. I'm tired of seeing the discourse surrounding films like this as being... One, you're a misogynist for hating the film. Two, you shouldn't be watching this movie anyway because you're a white man. Three, you only like this movie because Disney is paying you off. Or four, you're grasping at straws trying to strum up a bad movie because you're woke and the movie is woke. Stop it, guys. (laughs) I don't want to believe that people want to go into a two-hour movie wanting to get triggered and upset. Both sides are yelling at each other, and it's just making it such an unbearable place to be at as a comic book fan. Let's just go watch a movie and take it for what it is without politically shouting at one another from across the room. We all just want to have a good time, and for the people that found the Marvels as a good time, I'm actually kind of jealous of you. I wish I could have enjoyed this movie the way that you did. To the people who think that this is an abomination to cinema, you're overreacting. There are far worse things to do with your time than watch this movie. Yeah, it's not great, but it's not atrocious either. Not in the way that you're making it out to seem. But hey, those are my two cents on the controversy surrounding the Marvels. What did you think of the film? 
<laughs> Please try not to bite my head off in the YouTube comments. I really want to know why you enjoyed it if you did, and I want to know why you disliked it if you didn't enjoy it. Please keep it friendly. The next act of our episode is where we will look at some of those dichotomic comments. Here, we will go over some one-star reviews, some five-star reviews, and filmmaking factoids. This is Act 3. As of recording this episode, it is official. The Marvels is the lowest-grossing opening weekend in the MCU's history. The Marvels will finish the weekend with an estimated $47 million on opening weekend, which is a third of what Captain Marvel opened to on its debut in 2019. It's also the lowest grossing Marvel film on opening weekend since Ant-Man in 2017. Is that a testament to the quality of the film? An effect of the digital streaming era? Or are people genuinely experiencing superhero fatigue? It is likely a myriad of all three combined. We've seen films succeed in this environment. Films like Super Mario Brothers, Five Nights at Freddy's, Barbie, and Oppenheimer, they prove that audiences are still willing to go to the movies, but they are getting more subjective about what they see. They want to experience new worlds, new intellectual properties, or they will show out for critically acclaimed blockbusters. And it's also tied to the fact that financials are in play here. People are spending over $50 to $100 on just a night out to watch a movie. And if you're going to spend $50 to $100 on a night out with your family, why are you going to spend it on a mediocre superhero film? Why not go watch something that you're guaranteed to enjoy? Something that everyone's recommending? Or maybe even a concert show like the Taylor Swift event. <laughs> Studios need to make genuinely unique theater-exclusive movie experiences to bring people back, and sadly these experiences are too far and few in between. It's depressing to witness the decline of movie theaters before my eyes. I love the movie-going experience. I will forever be a patron of the communal experience of witnessing a film on the big screen with a large crowd on opening night. At a certain point in time, AMC, Regal, Alamo Drafthouse, and Cinemark would all be chomping at the bit for a Marvel movie like this. They all knew that Marvel equaled a guaranteed attendance record and cash for them, but those days are gone. But we are at a point in time where big tentpole action films like this, The Flash, Shazam, and Mission Impossible are flopping on a weekly basis we know that there are some troubled waters on the horizon for theaters nationwide. And I just want to say to everyone working at AMC or any of these theater chains, hold strong, guys. I will do whatever I can to keep you in business. Even if it means watching Taylor Swift for a third time, I'll do it. I mean, watch Oppenheimer for a third time in IMAX. <laughs> yeah, Oppenheimer, yeah. <laughs> So to compound the issues with Disney's low-performing Marvel installment, reviews have been lukewarm. Let's take a look at what Rotten Tomatoes had to say about the critical and audience reception of the Marvels. On Rotten Tomatoes, critics are holding at a barely fresh rating of 60%, but that may drop back down to Rotten by Monday. Consensus says that the Marvels is funny, refreshingly brief, and elevated by the chemistry of its three leads. The Marvels is easy to enjoy in the moment, despite its cluttered story and jumbled tonal shifts. Audiences are mostly positive and hark on the positive things that critics had to say, and they're scoring the Marvels at 85% on Rotten Tomatoes. Now, this is the part of the show that I actually have a lot of fun with. I started this a few weeks back with Hereditary, and it's going to become a staple of the show. This is where I have to put on a hazmat suit, and dive into the cesspool of toxic comments on Rotten Tomatoes. But to be fair, I'm going to try my best to stay away from the political hatred that's being spewed. I want to highlight some of the comments that have merit and actually deal with the film itself, not the politics behind it. Here are some one-star Marvel's reviews. David H. starts us off by writing, I had high hopes and was very let down. Probably the worst MCU edition yet. He doesn't go into much detail, but he does bring up a good cautionary tale for people. 
do not go into this movie with high hopes. You may end up enjoying it more if you temper your expectations. The Marvels, to me, is enjoyable when you set the Marvel bar extremely low. And if a low bar is your standard for Marvel now, great, you won't be disappointed. But this is definitely not in the same ballpark as The Winter Soldier, Endgame, or even Black Panther. But David does bring up a point. Try to keep your expectations low if you decide to go out to watch this film. Kalani writes, It was fine, if a bit inconsistent. I wouldn't watch it again, but not disappointed either. Nowhere near as bad as people are claiming. I enjoyed it a lot more than Thor Love and Thunder. It would have been fantastic as a TV movie, but pretty mediocre as a movie movie. That is excellent to say, Kalani. Those are great, fair, valid points that you bring up. And oh god, don't even mention Thor Love and Thunder. Don't get me started on that dumpster fire. This movie does feel like a 100-minute Disney Plus episode rather than a feature-length blockbuster, and I agree with you, Kalani. Good points. Good review. Christian M. reiterates my thoughts exactly and says, Another mid-Marvel movie with a messy plot, an underwhelming villain, and a serious lack of quality. It feels really sad to see the MCU slipping down like this. Shout out, however, to Iman Vellani, who saves this little shipwreck. <laughs> Uh, I completely agree, Christian. Amon was fucking awesome, and I hate to see her get mixed up in all this mess. Her performance is too good for this movie. <laughs> now, wouldn't it be fair to highlight some negativity without featuring some positives? I'm going to still keep on the hazmat suit, because believe it or not, positive fandom can get quite as toxic as negative. But here we go. Matt C. gushes and says... Very fun movie with a lot of comedic elements to it. The characters were well-written and acted, and it was great to see both Kamala Khan and Monica Rambeau showcased on the big screen. I was a little disappointed that Marvel chose to release some footage that they did in a few trailers, which spoiled quite a few of the movie's jokes and non-crucial storylines, but it didn't ruin the film by any means. I also felt like there could have been more action in the film, but what was there worked great. All in all, a good solid film, I thought, that opened up some great possibilities for the future. Well-written is the most debatable section of your review, but other than that, I have no complaints. I think that there is a lot of humor here that general audiences will eat up, and that mid credit scene will be talked about later on in this show. So, I, uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it, Matt. Lay brings up a great point in her review and says, Thoroughly enjoyed the movie under two hours and kept me interested the entire time. I laughed, gasped, and was all in 95% of the time. We'll see it again before it leaves the theaters. The point that I want to make with this review is that runtime is also a very underrated metric in the movie-going experience. Not every film needs to be Flowers of the Killing Moon long. They don't need to be the Irishman. Keeping it brisk save this movie from really going off the rails and being a chore to watch. So I really do agree with you, Leigh. Although I didn't like it as much as you did, the brisk runtime does keep it relatively rewatchable. See, there you are. There are some good people in this world that have opinions that aren't toxic or frustrating to read. They shared why they disliked or liked the film without spewing political nonsense. So thank you guys for your reviews. Now let's move on and look over some filmmaking factoids before we wrap up the spoiler-free portion of the episode. Our first filmmaking factoid. Olivia Wilde and Jamie Babbitt were approached to direct the movie before Nia DaCosta was hired. Wilde was previously offered the role of Gamora in Guardians of the Galaxy and would eventually go on to helm a Spider-Woman film set within Sony's Spider-Man universe. So you'll be seeing that probably in the next two years, that Spider-Woman film by Olivia Wilde. Olivia Wilde, although she's known for her acting prowess, she has directed feature-length films before, most notably Don't Worry Darling and Booksmart. So it would have been interesting to see what she could have done with this film. I would have definitely paid to have watched that. I don't know if she would have done a better job than Nia DaCosta, but it couldn't have hurt either. Speaking of Nia DaCosta... She is, in fact, the first black female director in the MCU. Really cool fact right there. Something I never thought about before until reading that. The Marvels 
is also Iman Vellani's first feature film in her filmography. This is her feature-length film debut. And what a way to roll out the red carpet. She was a standout in the film, and I cannot say enough good things about this young woman. She's going to be an absolute asset for Marvel going forward. I mentioned it with Lay's review. At 1 hour and 45 minutes, The Marvels is the shortest MCU film to date. Sometimes it's better to keep the film brief than overstay its welcome, and I appreciate this movie for keeping it short and simple. And that's about it. There surprisingly weren't a lot of filmmaking factoids this week, guys. Much like the film itself, there's not a lot of unique qualities to take away from the way this movie was made. And with that, this will finish out our non-spoiler segment of the show. If you don't want to be spoiled, go out and watch the film before listening past the outro music. If you have seen the Marvels, or you don't give two flirkin' asses about spoilers, stay tuned. We have only scratched the surface with this movie. (laughs) Hell, depending on how long we go, this may be a (laughs) two-parter. We'll see. As always, you can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter with the username PCWithGill. If you haven't already, please review and like the show on YouTube, Apple Podcasts, and Spotify. I'm going to be returning next week with a much more lighthearted film, the holiday classic John Hughes Thanksgiving film, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. I want to thank everyone who is going to be pausing the episode and is going to go watch the movie or doesn't want to get spoiled. Thank you guys for listening to the show. Now, go catch a movie. This is a spoiler alert. This is a spoiler alert. So, the biggest conversation I'm seeing on social media for this movie is the mid-credits scene. Some audiences reacted to the reveal of Kelsey Grammer's Beast with enormous fanfare. Others thought it was meh. Look, we all know that the X-Men are in the same universe now. Hell, Professor X was just in Multiverse of Madness, for fuck's sake. Why are people surprised and shocked by this reveal? Why are they holding on to Beast being revealed in this mid credit scene as the most mind-blowing event that has ever happened to the MCU? It's not. It's, it's cool, but we all know that it's coming. We all know that the X-Men are joining the MCU. And Kelsey Grammer isn't even wearing the makeup. It's a CGI version of Beast that looks kind of good, but kind of terrible at the same time. Overall, I think this mid credit scene is getting blown way out of proportion. I personally like the one that came before it with Amon Vellani showing up and telling Haley Steinfeld that she wants to join the Young Avengers. I like that credit sequence more than this one. It didn't do much for me, I gotta say. If I had a takeaway from this scene, it isn't the appearance of the X-Men in the MCU. It's that Kelsey Grammer is cast. Why the hell is Marvel using the Fox Universe cast? No offense to Kelsey, he's a perfect beast. He was excellently cast in X-Men 3, and I love that he reprised his role here. But wouldn't it be smarter to reboot the entire franchise from scratch, now that the MCU can do a lot more things? You could recast every role, get younger, start fresh, and not tie yourself into the messy shit that the X-Men franchise had to go through. They're bringing back Kelsey... Hugh Jackman is returning as Wolverine in Deadpool. Patrick Stewart was Professor X. Ryan Reynolds is coming back as Deadpool. A lot of these actors, although they are beloved, are seemingly already aging out of their roles, which begs the question, if you're going to bring back a roster of X-Men, why not bring back the X-Men first class roster? Fox rebooted the X-Men franchise for that particular reason, but somehow Disney is going with the Bryan Singer cast. It doesn't give me hope or optimism for the way they're going to include the X-Men in this franchise. I'm going to be honest with you. However, if that was Michael Fassbender as Magneto in the mid credit scene, then we'd have something to talk about. Then you'd have me excited. But Beast being here, it's, it's cool, I guess. It's whatever. <laughs>
<laughs> it does nothing for me. But let's get back to the Marvels itself. I want to address the two moments that broke the film for me. And they are the two scenes that you've probably heard from word of mouth. The first scene is on Aladna. I mentioned that Darben's evil plan was basically re-terraforming her planet with atmosphere, oceans, and a sun by nearly sucking them through a space jump. But this was a scene that I nearly checked out of the film for. Aladna is a beautiful beach planet. It resembles the coasts of Greece and Italy. And being within range of Darben's home planet Hala, Aladna was an easy candidate for her to capture the ocean. And after a cute brief montage of the Marvels building rapport and team spirit, they deduced that this planet was going to be the target of Darben's next attack. But two problems persist here. The first problem being that it was the home of Carol's husband, Prince Jan. The idea that Carol is married is a bit shocking, but it's kind of easy to compartmentalize. However, the details of said marriage are so crudely brushed over that it felt problematic. In a throwaway line, Carol says that she had to get married in order to save the planet. Then it's never referenced again. And the person that she's betrothed to is a subject in question for me. Prince Yan, for those who don't know, is portrayed by the Korean pop star Park Seo-joon. Marvel has done this a lot. We look back at the Eternals post credit scene and they had Harry Styles show up as Eros, a.k.a. Star Fox. Hell, they even did it with Charlize Theron in uh, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness. Where the fuck has that character been? <laughs> but you know what? This casting to me, it makes sense leading into the second problem I had with the scene. And that is that Aladna is a planet that only speaks through song. A plot contrivance is created that forces the audience into witnessing a seven minute long musical sequence. And to have a Korean pop star at the helm of that, it does make sense. So at least his casting didn't go fully to waste. But I did find the particular scene to be extremely desperate and cringeworthy. Not only does it come off completely out of left field and not match the movie tonally, but it feels like it's pandering. Disney knew that they were going to have Korean and Pakistani audiences watching the film for Aman Vellani and Park Seo Joon. So they purposely added this number to appeal to those fan bases. Park gets to showcase his vocals and the costume dance number resembles that of Pakistan Lollywood. People are going to have a lot of fun with this scene. And why wouldn't you? There's a lot of energy, colorful costumes, smiling faces, and no tension. But it's just a loud, big, stupid diversion from the main plot. That planet, keep in mind, is about to die, and they're all having a dancing number. It's really bizarre. Aladna is emblematic of a huge issue I had with this movie. The script feels like a Frankenstein of ideas. It fumbles from scene to scene with hardly any rhyme or reason. And to put it into context, just minutes before this, Darben destroys the homeworld of the scrolls. It's all over the place in what it wants to say and what it wants to be. The second sequence that I want to talk about is the one involving everyone's favorite kitty, Goose. Now look, I'm a huge cat lover. If I could have a pet in my living arrangement, I would definitely love to rescue a small little orange tabby cat. Goose was the character in the original Captain Marvel that I resonated to the most because I just love cats. I'm a huge cat guy, by the way. My issue with Goose and the Flurkins in this movie is that Disney somehow found a way to ruin kitties for me. This obnoxious little side plot involves Nick Fury finding an alarming number of pink eggs throughout the ship, given the amount of things Goose was devouring, the kitty's defiant attitude throughout the whole film, and the times that Goose vomited, it was pretty obvious that the eggs meant that Goose was pregnant. Side note, Nick Fury to me is also a colossal disappointment. What Marvel has done with this character since Avengers Infinity War is fucking criminal. He was absent in Endgame. He was replaced as a scroll in Spider-Man No Way Home. And while he was away from Earth, he failed to find the scroll a home to live on. He became a pariah and a shell of himself. And now he's reduced to being just comedic relief for the other characters. I truly believe that Marvel should have just killed him off in The Winter Soldier if this is what they planned to do with him. 
It's an absolute fucking joke, and they turn this character into a complete punchline. But in this scene particularly, Fury discovers that the eggs are all of Goose's children, and with dozens of Flurkin on board and the ship's imminent destruction looming, he comes to the realization that the Flurkins contain pocket dimensions that could stow the crew of his ship inside of them, essentially being able to store hundreds of crewmates in a single kitty-filled escape pod. In theory, it sounds hilarious, right? <laughs> but in execution, this scene is difficult to watch. Set in slow motion, we observe as the kitties rampage throughout the ship, devouring every human with their tentacles, and to the tune of Cats the Musical's Memory. The audience I went to the film with was dead silent, except for maybe one older woman who got a kick out of the Cats musical stuff. And I'm glad she had a ball, but I was left observing this scene in horror and disgust with my jaw open. And in one fleeting moment, I had an out-of-body experience. I thought back to everything that we experienced in the MCU. To think, within the matter of a decade... We went from a scene where T'Challa was embracing the body of his father who was killed by a terrorist attack, to watching a litter of kitten squids eat hundreds of people on a spaceship. It broke all immersion for me. Oh my god. (laughs) Now, every comic book movie is different and deserves to be critiqued for their merits within their own narrative. And sadly, I feel like this is one unique case where the movie broke my immersion in the story. I hated every second of the scene. And it's a shame because I love kitties and gatos, but this was just awful. Absolutely awful. In the spoiler-free part of the show, I mentioned that there are a lot of missed opportunities in this movie. When this movie is engaging and interesting, it's highly watchable. And I do find merit in it. That's why I rated it a 2 instead of a 1. And one of those scenes that makes the movie fun is that initial fight in the con home. Kamala discovers that her bangle is cosmically tied to Carol and Monica's powers. Whenever the superheroes simultaneously use their powers, they swap places. And in this scene, our heroes are thrust into an action sequence that spans in three different locations. Monica is fighting on the moon with a couple of Kree warriors. Kamala is engaged with a couple of Kree warriors in her home. And then Carol is aboard Darben's spaceship. The action here is shot very well. We can follow the location swapping in action well enough to know who's fighting who, where they are, and how to approach their opponent. There's a lot of camera movement and cutting, which adds to the energy of the chaos that is happening on screen. Kamala's family is hilariously fighting back against their adversarial aliens with household items and teamwork, while the superheroes have to figure out a way to overcome their opponents without swapping. It's such a cool concept, but it is severely underused throughout the movie's runtime. I would like this movie a lot more if we saw more of this throughout the runtime. Speaking of powers, let's get into what really hurt the script of this movie, and that is the space magic mumbo-jumbo bullshit dialogue. I still don't quite understand what the fuck Monica Rambeau's powers are, or how the fuck she closes the wormhole at the end. Because the movie thinks it can just throw some intelligent sounding words at us and think it's enough for us to piece together how they're going to overcome the big hurdle in the finale. That is called lazy writing. It is also what you call in the industry, my friends, boxing yourself into a corner. The writing team came up with such a convoluted and big world changing event, they couldn't see their way out of it. So in their desperation, they thought that stringing together words like quantum and ionic and reality bleeding and photon was enough justification to give Monica supersonic abilities to reverse what Darben did when she punched a hole in the space timeline. After Monica sacrifices herself to the other side of the portal, Carol then jumpstarts the sun by, I don't know, flying hot enough to restart Hala's sun, I guess? See, the contrivances they made up to resolve the film are just so flimsy and undercooked. It really begs the audience to shut their brain off and just go with it. And it frustrates me. This is just making it up as you go along. You can go ahead and dismiss the plot holes and conveniences by saying, Oh, Gil, it's just a movie. Don't think about it too hard. But when they're this glaringly obvious and poorly executed, how can I not? This is not intelligent. 
This is the same shit that Michael Bay got slack for in the Transformers. It's all just mumbo-jumbo techno-babble. <laughs> Not only that, Carol and Monica, they're so boring to watch in this movie. And it isn't because Brie and Tiana are terrible actors. No, it's because the script has them sleepwalking from scene to scene, without any real tension, sense of urgency, or emotional dynamics. They are basically just overpowered avatars that are being used to save people, rather than unique beings on their own with their own moral codes, acting on the behalf of a greater purpose. You juxtapose these characters to T'Challa in Black Panther or even Peter Parker in No Way Home, those characters are served with some morally gray areas. They want to kill other characters for what's happened to them, but they decide to hold back. They decide to be more honorable. And in those moments, they are more endearing. It makes us appreciate how smart, clever, and honorable they can be when they have to make difficult decisions. Carol and Monica are never given those moral gray areas. They're never given those harsh decisions. And when they did have to address some morally gray areas like the scene in Tarnax when the scrolls are killed, it's brushed off just a few seconds later with no fear at all. No discipline, no aftermath, no consequences for their actions. And the biggest missed opportunity to introduce this level of character conflict lied between what they did with Kamala and Carol in that Tarnax scene. Kamala, who is a fangirl of Carol's, sees her as a god, right? She can do no wrong. But in this moment, she has to make a tough decision to leave innocent civilians to die when Darben destroys the Skrull's planet. It plays into that old adage that you never want to meet your heroes, and I firmly thought that this was going to be a through line all the way through to the end of the film. Hell, Carol is even made out to be an antagonist at one point. Her destroying the supreme intelligence is what caused Darben to go on her warpath. And when that little tidbit of information gets to the rest of the team, they don't really cook her on it. They have a brief powwow and then they get back to work. I wanted to see tension and distrust between Kamala and Carol. I wanted to see Kamala's fandom get tested. I wanted to see her growth into her own confident self to be her own hero. But Nia DaCosta just throws that all down the shitter in the next scene when Carol shakes Kamala's hand and says, let's start over. And they both agree. What kind of bullshit is this? It's a golden opportunity to give both characters a meaningful arc, which could pay off in a huge way when they finally see eye to eye. It could be a cathartic release when they join forces at the end. But it doesn't lean into that at all. And what I mentioned in the spoiler-free segment of the show that is both the highlight of the film for me, but also a detriment, this Tarnak scene is it because I think they could have had something special had they leaned into Kamala and Carol standing off against one another. I'm honestly pissed off that they negated this. Even Carol's abandonment of Monica when she was young feels superficial and shallow in the grand scheme of things. I think Monica Rambo would have let that anger go a long time ago. I don't know why she's still holding it in her mid to late 20s. Earlier in the show, I applauded Marvel for paving the ways for new diverse actors and writers to get their hands on tentpole films. But the unfortunate blowback from that is that you get people working on these huge properties that have hardly any experience. And you can tell that with a better crew of writers and more competent directors, this movie could have done something unique and interesting. But what we get here is a soulless, shallow, grab bag of ideas crudely strung together by a writer and director that boxed herself into a corner and couldn't find their way out. Marvel films used to have standards. They treated their characters with dignity, respect, and honor to the source material. And as we have gone along in the timeline, shifting from phase to phase, it feels like Marvel is losing its magic. It's losing that golden standard of quality. This movie in particular felt so pandering, so generic, so utterly formulaic that I really did feel like the studio was throwing their characters into a Mad Lib script and letting it play out. I would like to imagine that Marvel can flip the narrative once they return to direct their most well-known characters like Spider-Man, Hulk, Fantastic Four, and the X-Men, but now I'm not so sure. Their creative hirings aren't doing too well, and people are losing patience in the overall plot of the universe. Where is this all leading to? 
And why is it leading to this? Why does every fucking movie now feel like another day of homework for a major quiz at the end of the semester? Sometimes ambition greatly outweighs quality, and that is what we are getting out of the MCU these days. Too many ambitious ideas without the heft and quality behind them. Marvel really needed a big win this weekend, but instead they received their second consecutive flop, critically and financially, and I'm looking forward to seeing them rush to put this film on Disney Plus in a few weeks, just as a desperate act to balance out their poor theatrical release. I could probably talk for another hour about things in this film that were a big miss. I probably left off some major details in the film, like Valkyrie's cameo, the bad costume redesigns, and the poor CGI. But I'm glad I was able to touch on the key things, and I don't want to go any longer with this. I think I've said enough. I don't think this movie is a disaster, despite the fact that I've tirated for about an hour about it. (laughs) But it is evident that Marvel may need to take a break and reevaluate their direction. That is going to do it for this long-winded episode of Post Credits. Let me know what you thought of the movie on social media. I will see you guys next week with Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Let me know if I missed anything that you wanted me to touch on, and perhaps I'll answer that in the next episode. I hope you all have a great week, and I will see you next time. Bye-bye.